I'm thankful for a chance to be back. I trust that everyone had a good meal. It's a beautiful, beautiful day. And I'm just so thankful that God has blessed us with the health and the opportunity to be here, to be together, to study together. I know we have members of the church here. We have some visitors from Texas. We have some visitors from other parts of Arkansas. And it just means a lot to me. This is a treasure time, an important time. It's not always easy to be away from my family. I'm pretty convinced it gets harder and harder every year to be away. And I always want to feel like there's a reason, that there's something that God is doing that says this is what needed to happen. And part of what really helps me with that is when you're here, when people come and they, they care and they're ready and they're faithful. And so thank you for being here this afternoon. I hope that we get to study some things that will help you. In some ways, I'm going to tie in a little bit of what we've done so far. But first, I want to begin with a statement. Uh, I'll use the first five minutes or so, maybe ten, trying to prove this statement because it's very important that you not only understand it, but that you accept it. The statement is this. You, yourself, your person, your body, you, you are a vessel. You are a container. You're a cup. You are a vessel that has been restored by the Lord, repaired, restored, and repurposed in whatever form he decides. We'll talk about that in a bit. So that you can be filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. You heard me say that. You are to be filled to the top with the Holy Spirit so that everywhere you go, you will pour forth from yourself. You will pour forth of the Spirit into the lives of everyone you meet. Everyone that God puts in your life. That's the opening statement. It ties in both of the lessons so far. Remember last night, we are not to be keepers, we're to be givers. He fills us with the Spirit so that we can give that Spirit, so that we can share it in His name. And we talked about living for Christ's purpose. You were broken. You were cracked. You were unable to hold anything. And he said, I can work with that piece of clay right there. I want that piece of clay. I will fix it and I will use it. So I'm going to take a few minutes and try to break that into two pieces and prove it to you. Here's the tighter sentence. You are a vessel restored by the Lord to be filled with the Spirit, to pour forth that Spirit into the lives of all that you know. So to begin, let's see if we can figure out this vessel thing. Did you know that there is a lot of cup imagery pertaining to you throughout the entire Bible. There's some stuff in Romans 9 about how there are vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. You're a vessel. You're either filled with wrath, wrath or you're filled with mercy. But 2 Corinthians 4 may help us the most. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and let me begin in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, since we have this ministry... As we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. So he's got this ministry in him. Now move down with me to verse 7. But we have this treasure, this gospel, this ministry. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus also may, may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, if you're willing to do just a little bit of marking, got a pencil or something, you're not afraid to do just a little bit of marking, what I would have you do is I would have you circle the idea of vessels in verse seven. We are vessels. In verse 10, he tells you what those vessels are. He said, it's your body, your fleshly, I don't think he's talking about the body of Christ here. I'll try to prove that in a moment. But he said, you carry about in your body the vessel, the dying of Christ, so that Jesus may be manifested in your body. And in verse 11, at the end, I would circle what? Our mortal flesh. Now, what Paul is saying is he's saying our bodies are just clay at best. We're so imperfect and we make mistakes and it's torn down. But the point is, God decided to put in each of us a perfect thing to be carried about in imperfect vessels and use this so that the glory would never be in this. When you think about it, it's brilliant. If he made you sinless or he made you perfect or he made your body eternal and you carried around the gospel, you might start thinking the best part of what you're offering is this body of yours. But you're never going to think that, are you? Never going to think that. Because our bodies are so imperfect and yet we pour forth of the will of God. Now, I want to add a little thought to this in 2 Corinthians 12. Some of us may wish our bodies were different. Lord, if, if you want me to be a vessel and you want me to carry about the ministry of Jesus, why don't you make me healthier? Why don't you cure me from this disease? Why do I have these genetics why have I suffered the consequences of mistakes that I've made in the past? And yet, here's the important part of that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, remember how the Apostle Paul had the thorn in the flesh? That was his argument. You know, my ve the vessel's fine, Lord. I know I'm just a clay pot. But if you could make that maybe at least like, you know, ceramic or something, that'd be great. Can you fix this thorn in the flesh? What is the thorn in the flesh? I don't know, except everybody knows it was his eyesight. Nobody really knows that. I think it was his eyesight. I used to think it was something else, then I turned 30. Now I think, it's, I think it's his eyesight. But the point is this, there was something about it. It could have been anything. But he thought, if you would change this, watch this, because people think this way, then I could do that better. But what did God say to him? God said, I'll handle the vessel business. I'll make you the container I want you to be. I'll make you in just the condition that I want you to be. You can pray for better health. If I think it'll help, I'll give it to you. And if I don't think it will help, by the grace of my name, I will not. He said in verse nine, after implored three times to change whatever it was, my grace is sufficient for you for power. My power is perfected in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, he said, I'll I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And then he goes on to talk about contentment. Here's why I say all this. You, your life is a container to hold something beautiful. Exactly who you are, exactly what you look like, at exactly your age, your health, your condition, you are exactly the vessel the Lord wants you to be to pour forth his spirit. And every vessel of Christ will do that. If you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, I'll add one more passage to the vessel side, and then we'll take a look at the Holy Spirit side. In 1 Thessalonians, I just want you to see the consistency in the language. We are containers. We hold things. 
We pour those things. In 1 Thessalonians 4, with reference to our body, we're told that they need to be kept in a certain condition. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1, it talks about walking and pleasing God, verse 1, and excelling still more. In verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Well, because each of you needs to know how to possess his own what? Vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. And he says, verse seven, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So be really clear about this. God has called you in your imperfect state and body to hold the perfect will of God. But that does not mean that we can use this body to do sinful things. And if more of us would think of it this way, we would be a lot more holy. That for us to use our bodies to do sinful things would to defy our very purpose, which is to hold pure things and pour them into the life of, of others. Our bodies are a part of this, and I want you to appreciate your body. I want you to be thankful for your body. And by the way, I'm going to throw in some extra stuff since I got a little bit extra time. If you want to pray for better health, pray for better health. But tell God why you want it. You want to feel better? How come? Well, I, 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 you know, I, I want to go back to Sedona. Not good enough. I want to see my grandkids. Not good enough. You're asking God to change your vessel. To alter it. To supernaturally change it. Why? Maybe if we're praying for people to get better, we should do it more appropriately. God, would you... Heal me of this pain, because if you do, I believe that I will be better positioned to pour the Spirit into the lives of the people I know. And then God will decide whether you're right about that or not. But see, then we're able to accept both answers, because we're able to carry out our purpose regardless of what happens. I think we should do that more. And by the way, sometimes people, uh, God chooses for them to die. A friend of mine died just this week. John Banks died this week. Any of you know John? Young man, battled cancer for many years. He passed away this week somewhat unexpectedly, even after his journey. It was God's judgment that he had poured forth all that God chose for him to pour. And his body was taken. I can accept that too if I know my purpose and that God is involved in it. So this text says to watch your body. So let me get to the second half. You're like, okay, the vessel thing's fine. I want to hear about the Holy Spirit stuff. I get it. I'm a container, got it, cup, bowl, whatever. But what do you mean by filled with the Spirit? All I mean is what the Bible says. All I mean is what the scripture shows us. So can I just show you what the scripture says? I want you to go with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. While you're turning there, I want to set the scene just a bit. 1 Corinthians 6 is about morality and immorality, which will be discussed before we're done today, how we use these bodies of ours. That is what he's talking about. He mentions in verse 18, fleeing immorality. There's a lengthy read here that would begin in about verse 12. And if you're ever interested in doing so, you can circle the word body. The word B-O-D-Y, body, appears, I think, eight times in this read. So far as I can tell, it's always that thing you brought with you that you're now sitting in that pew with. That, that body of yours has, has work to do, and there's some stuff you can't have connected to it. But in verse 18, this is what we see. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. It's an interesting phrase, probably had more to do with their thinking. But his point is, the immoral man sins against his own body. And then he says this, why can't I sin against my own body? So it's my body. I mean, if I want to be immoral with my body or I want to sit on the couch all day, like, why can't I do that? 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For that body of yours, that vessel's been bought with a price. God, I mean, Jesus is so great. He made your body and then we broke it and then he bought it back and decided to use it. It's pretty amazing. He bought it, therefore glorify God in your body. Boy, there's a big discussion in the church about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Is there a literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit? You guys want me to tell you? I know so little. But I have surmised enough courage to stand before a group of people and just read what the Bible says. The Bible says that your body that you brought with you today is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is in you. The Bible says that you received him from God. And the Bible says that you are not under your own ownership or power. You have a new purpose. The Lord has bought you with a price. I'll see if I can explain what's going on there in a minute. But go back to Acts chapter 6 for a moment. In Acts 6, we get similar language. Acts chapter 6, do you remember in the early days of the church, they needed to select some men. They needed these men to be maybe deacons. It's hard to tell exactly, but oversee some duties so that the ladies could get fed the food that was needed. Interesting, the church was in the food business when it meant helping needy saints and seen pretty early on in Acts 6. But what we find is in the text, the Bible says in verse 5 that these men, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, they were told, select men full of the Spirit. Whatever, listen, whatever you think it is, and I'm going to take a stab at it in a minute, whatever it is, you need to be full of whatever it is. If you're like, it's not a literal indwelling, then be full of whatever non-literal indwelling you believe that it is. If it's a full indwelling, then be full of the indwelling. But we spend a lot of time arguing what it means to be filled with the Spirit with vessels half devoid of the Spirit. Like we've got to be filled with that and we're gonna try to see if we can figure that out. But these men are filled with the Spirit. That is God's will for us to be. Go to Ephesians, please. Maybe the most telling of them all. Ephesians in chapter five for a moment. Ephesians five, love this text. I'd like to read verses 15 through 21. Verses 15 through 21. And I want you to see the Spirit shows up right in the middle. What does it mean? Let's read it. Therefore, Ephesians 5, 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Use your vessel wisely. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So let's just take what's there. One thing that we know is that we only have, verse 15, a limited amount of time. You're only gonna be in that vessel a little while longer. For some of us, it's shorter than you can possibly imagine. And haven't we learned that in the last 18 months in ways that we never saw coming? It may be a day, a week, it may be 10 years. It doesn't matter your age. You've got time, but you need to use that time wisely. How do I use it? Well, I could fill myself with things like alcohol. I could put alcohol in me and it could alter who I am, but Christians won't do that. They instead will be filled with the spirit. They want to be filled with the spirit and they want him to alter who they are. Now you might argue that I might not be able to tell you what it means, but I can tell you what it looks like. I think that may be verses 19 and following. 
Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing to one another. Make melody with your hearts. Give thanks all the time. Verse 20, all the time give thanks. In the name of the Lord Jesus to God and subject yourself to one another. I think that's a good start. What do you mean be filled with the Holy Spirit and poured into the life of others? You're being too coded here. Like, what does that mean? Well, let's start with this. It means be a singer of the praises of the Lord. And pour that voice into any ear that will listen. I don't think everybody in the church does that, but that's what we do. It means to give thanks in any and every and all situations that ever reveal themselves in your life. To find the glory of God in every single thing. And let everybody in your life know it and hear it and feel it. Even in the sorrowful and hurtful times. And it means, verse 21, to be subject to fellow believers to serve them and help them and love them and support them. I mean, what are the chances we're going to pour forth of the Spirit into the lives of a stranger if we're not pouring forth of the Spirit into the lives of those with which we share the Spirit? And so those are three things that are going to happen. And so we can at least say that's what it's supposed to look like. But there's a passage that helps us more than any other. I'm not going to tell you today whether I believe that there's a literal indwelling of the spirit or a figurative indwelling or a spiritual or whatever. Just pick any adjective you want. I don't know. I've long since given up telling you what the spirit can and cannot do. Can I say that on record? I've long since given up on that, telling you what his abilities are. But I can show you what this is supposed to look like. Your body, your life right now. I can show you what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's Galatians, and let's all head that direction. I need you, please, in Galatians chapter 5. We had a chance to talk about it this morning. We were finishing up with this idea that now we live to serve others, and that means bearing fruit. We learn a lot about that fruit in Galatians chapter 5. Now, if, verse 18, if you are very uncomfortable at this point, if you're like, I don't like this, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this filled with the Spirit business and what might be being suggested, then I'm going to let you off the hook a little bit, and I'll just say, let's change the language then. If you don't like filled with the Spirit, how about led by the Spirit? Is that okay? People go, ah, it's a little, maybe even weirder. Well, verse 18 says you're to be led by the Spirit. So you, you dwell or indwell or not dwell however you please, but I know this, the, the objective for the Lord is for the Spirit to completely take over my life and lead me to do His work. Now, we know, what it, we know what it is. We're not guessing. Look in verses 22 and 23. What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? It means to be filled with nine things. To be filled with love, regardless of circumstances. To be filled with joy. To be filled with peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. To fill myself up with that so that everyone that I meet gets to experience, watch this, they get to experience the Holy Spirit because they are experiencing me. You might be like, well, we're not the Holy Spirit. No, that's for sure. But when they meet you, sir, Brent, they should experience love. When they meet Rob, they should experience patience. When they meet Brother Barnes, they should experience self-control. Because in any and every and all circumstances, and it's almost like the circumstances don't matter, it's almost like that. In any and every circumstance, these spiritual things permeate. Now the problem is the list that comes before it. Because while the devil does not like the idea of you being filled with love. He does not like that. Or filled with gentleness. Christians aren't supposed to be gentle. He doesn't like that. 
He doesn't need to drain the spirit totally out of you to ruin it. He just needs to put something in the cup that doesn't belong. And it comes in the form of these things. Here are the deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh, verse 17, are set opposite of the spirit. The deeds of the flesh, the things that the flesh crave, the lust of the eyes and flesh and pride, they are these things. They're sexual stuff. Immorality, verse 19, impurity and sensuality. sensuality. Sexual stuff is out there to ruin everything. Also, idolatry and sorcery, replacing God with things, is out there to ruin everything. And then you get this lengthy list that Christians know nothing about. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying, fighting one another, jealousy, anger. Those are works of the flesh. Drunkenness, carousing, things like these. That's just wasteful living. He said, I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, here's the rub. It would be easy for me to say, okay, easy sermon. You guys ready? Don't do the stuff that I just read and do all the stuff that we read a minute ago. So as we stand and sing, okay, sermon over. So what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control, and not immorality, impurity, the whole deal, right? Well, duh, right? Here's the rub, and this is where it gets kind of strange. Why did God put the spiritual things into this flesh? It's my flesh that wants all that. My flesh wants to argue with you. My flesh wants to argue with you. My flesh wants to view something that is illicit and inappropriate. My flesh wants to drink that or smoke that or feel that. So why why did God... I mean, I get that we're vessels and clay and imperfect, but why did he put something great in me when the container that holds the great thing wants to do things counterwise to the great thing? Have you thought about that? That just doesn't seem fair. How much more powerful can the gospel be in the lives of the people you know If you possess a body capable of every selfish and sinful thing, you know you have one. So do I. And yet the spirit has taken up such a dominant residence within that flawed shell that you defy the desires of your flesh for the sake of the spirit working through you. Like you're in the best possible place to testify to the power of the spirit because you're in a flawed body. And you make the decisions that are right. So let me talk about this. I pray about this a lot. Look, you want to know what I pray about a lot? Verses 22 and 23, I want more of that. More, much, much more of that. And I know that everything in verses 19, 20, and 21 just get in the way. They block the message. I'm trying to invite somebody to church, but I'm riding their tailgate all the way down the highway because they're driving too slowly. Like I'm constantly letting the flesh thing get in the way of the spiritual thing. So I want to walk you through what happened in my life, and then hopefully this will land in a place where it can help you. I started making it an objective to get up each and every morning. And in our bathroom, there are tiles in our bathroom wall. And I would get up every morning and I thought, you know, I'm just not thinking about the fruit of the Spirit enough. If I spent more time thinking about the fruit of the Spirit and praying about the fruit of the Spirit, and then it'll help. So I would go love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then I'd brush my teeth and I'd walk back by and I'd go, I need to pick one. And I'd pick one for the day. So like, um, this is online. 
So there was, so maybe there's one particular family member I'm going to see today. Okay. So I pick patience and I would like pray about it. And I would go patience. I journal it. And I think today, today I'm going to be filled with patience. I'm going to be filled with patience and patience is going to dominate my day. I still do this, but I did it religiously for a while. And you guys think that helped? It did help some. Okay. Let's not totally fall apart. It helped some. It helped do that. That really, really does help. But I was getting super frustrated because I'd prayed about it and thought about it and wrote about it and prepared it. And then by like three o'clock, there goes the patience, you know? And I thought, okay, I'm gonna keep that. But obviously what I need to start doing is praying for God to take away the other stuff. So I added a second level. So get this, I'm getting up every morning and I'm going today it's self-control. And then I would look at this list and I would go, okay, what do we need to fight today, you know? And I would go immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, whatever. Maybe it's strife, maybe it's carousing, whatever. Idolatry a lot. And I would go to God and say, God, please. And I mean, I was calling on the name of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. Please, God, your spirit is welcome here. Would you please remove idolatry from my heart? Would you please help me? I I worded it every possible way. If you're like, I don't like the way that's worded. I worded it every way. Would you please help me to remove idolatry from my heart? Would you please put people in my life who can get me to be less idolatrous? And I mean, I was loading it up. And so part of my prayer was, this is the quality I'm going to carry to everyone. And part of it was, this is the junk that's got to go. And how many of you guys think that helped? Yeah, I mean, that helped. It did help. It's, it was helpful. And so, in fact, it started to get a little run going. Like it was really, really going well. But somehow... Some way, it just kept falling apart. And I was really, I was at a very frustrated point in my faith not too many years ago. Like, what else can I do, God? I'm trying, I'm praying, I'm begging, I'm thinking, I'm writing, I'm doing it all. And it's like, there's just something weird that's not right. And then one day it was like, and I'm gonna tell you guys, I am still woefully imperfect, broken in many ways, and I still ride a few tailgates on Highway 849. But a lot of things in my life changed when I understood that while I was calling to be filled with the Spirit, there was one obvious problem that I had willfully ignored. I want you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to finish by talking about this. Matthew chapter 23. I told you guys, somebody said after I finished this morning, did you say Christmas cup at the end? That was very strange, off-putting. Yes, I want to talk to you about Christmas cup. We're getting close to Christmas. There's two kinds of people in the world, you know. There's the people that every date after September 1st is Christmas season. That's me. And then there's my wife who just wishes that all Christmas trees would catch fire and burn to nothing. Um, Amen over there on that. But for us, she allows me after Thanksgiving to begin to pull items out of the attic. And so last Thanksgiving, we're done. You know, it's like that night. And I pull down a box, and there's my favorite Christmas coffee mug. It's really decorative and pretty. It's got all the proper colors and the candy cane thing. It's really nice. And it's unique to a lot of other, other coffee mugs because it's large. I like that. But it has a, a snowman in it. Like not a picture of a snowman, but an actual two-inch tall Fairly cute, big fat body at the bottom, secondary body, third body, and a little carrot nose that sticks up like this. He's, he's cute. He's cute. But he does not belong in a coffee cup because a coffee cup's purpose is singular. It's very simple. It's to hold the life-giving 
colored water of blessing called coffee. The mug's purpose is to hold coffee to the brim so that it can pour forth of its richness into the life of everyone that it meets. So I, I said, that's kind of cute and weird. And I'd forgotten that he was in there last year when I pulled it out. I said, so I did what I was supposed to do. I just completely covered him up. Like, we don't need to see you, dude. And so I started sipping coffee. But it wasn't long before this little carrot nose came out and then the head and then the body. And I just thought, this is just strange. Like, all I could think about wasn't, that's a cute dude in the middle, but he is taking up space where coffee belongs. And my theory was proven right because I got to the end of that first morning and we have everybody in our house drinks coffee. So the pot's totally empty and everybody dares each other to be the one that makes another pot. Nobody will do it. And so the last of my coffee was this beautiful last full drink that I would get from the base of that cup. And I lifted it and like four drops came out because in the bottom of the cup where that last beautiful drink should be is a big fat snowman body taking up space that doesn't belong. And really what I tried to do once is reach down when the coffee had gotten a little bit low and it gotten a little cooler. I reached down and grabbed his nose and I thought, I'm just breaking this guy out. Like, let's get him out of there. And if I can get him out, the coffee will fill right in. And all I did was broke his nose. So now he's this cute guy, a little broken nose. But anyway, if you can understand that super ridiculous, simple visual, okay, then I'm ready to tell you something. In that illustration, what are you? You're the cup. You're the container. God made you. That's what you are. And in that illustration, you are designed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, totally up to the top. The problem with me, and that's an interesting way of wording it, is that I was not only the cup, I was also the snowman in the middle of the cup. Does that make sense to you? I was the container, but at the center of my own life, in the center of my heart, in the core where nobody else gets to see, where all the decisions really get made, where everything gets kind of shaped forward. In the dead center of me was me. It was always me. What do I want? What pays off for me? And I did the biblical thing. I said, well, I'm just going to cover me up. That's what I'll do. And I would pour the Spirit every day. I'd read the Word. You want the Spirit to guide you? Read the Word. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Reading the Word, praying. But the problem is, though I filled up the cup with the Spirit, is the cup filled with the Spirit? And at the center, isn't that interesting? What's really going on in the cup is the Spirit lives around me. You can fill that cup with the Spirit all you want, and it will never be a cup filled with the Spirit if you are the snowman in the middle taking up space where the Spirit belongs. Now, good news, if you remove yourself, it's kind of like coffee. You, if you remove the snowman, you don't have to beg the coffee to take up the void. It will fill it in automatically. The Spirit will do that too. But Jesus in Matthew 23 uses the imagery, no snowman illustrations from Jesus, but he does use dirt And it carries the same connotation. So in Matthew chapter 23, in Matthew chapter 23, listen to the way that Jesus words it about the the Pharisees, the scribes. He says in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full. And I want you to notice these two words. He could have said anything in the world. Okay, this is very fascinating to me. He could have, he could have, I mean, they're a mess. He could have listed anything. He said, on the inside of the cup, There is robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it 
may become clean. You know, the Pharisees had 99 problems, but he only pointed out two. Did you see them? Remember last night? Who are these guys over here on the end? Remember those guys? Takers. Who are they out for? Themselves. The end motives of everything they did was himself. He said, your problem is on the inside where my heart should be, you're robbers. And then just in case they don't get it, he says, you are focused on what? Did you see it? I'm reading from the New American Standard. Self-indulgence. You know, the problem with you guys, the Pharisees, is in the end and at the beginning and in the middle, it's really just all about you. And as long as it's all about you, Pharisees, scribes, Levites, priests, you can preach, you can quote scriptures, you can go to church, you can do a lot of the right things, you can look the part, but you'll never be mine because you'll always belong to yourself and your own desires. That was, I'm sorry if I'm, bit, I feel like I'm in a big confession room today. Last night I told you I'm a keeper. I'm, I'm praying about it every day. By the way, great conversation after last night. Most of us bring up the homeless guy on the street and, you know, that's a deal. But just remember, there's lots of great people that we can help, that we do know about, that we can help. Well, that's not my predisposition. I have to work on that. Well, my other predisposition is I focus on myself way too much. And so I started asking questions, and this is what I want you to do. Go to 2 Timothy. We'll settle into a final text of the, of the afternoon, 2 Timothy. I started asking myself a series of questions, and I want you to do this too. They're really easy. They're not complicated. You can word them however you want. But whatever the situation, if you're dealing with the church, where you choose to worship or how you choose to participate in worship or whether or not you're going to come back to worship, if you're deciding in your marriage, like how you're going to handle issues in your marriage and how you're going to build your marriage and what's going to go on in your home, it doesn't matter what the question is, the issue is, you have to stop long enough to ask yourself some simple questions. Here's the most basic one. Is this about me. Please remember that question. I'm going to go to that church. Who's that about? I'm going to make that decision. Who's that about? This is what I'm going to do with my marriage. Who's it about? Is this about me? This thing I'm about to do or say or this place I'm about to go, who benefits from this? Who is it designed to benefit? Is it designed to benefit my spouse because it's good for them? Or is it designed to benefit God? Or is the real answer even, and this is what I started to learn, and this is really sobering, that a lot of the good things I was doing, spiritual things, if you really sat me down with Jesus Christ looking me in the eye who could see to the core of my soul and he asked me, who were you really doing that for? Sometimes it was like preaching, and the answer was me. I'm doing that for me. How how am I going to be the vessel that holds the Spirit and shows the goodness of the Spirit with others if my own desires are at the core of it all? So I want you to ask yourself a series of questions all the time. Is it about me? Who benefits from this? Who's this really about? Now, I made a couple of notes before I got up here because I wanted to remember to tell you this. Sometimes you're going to go, well, this is about God. But you're not going to be sure. Well, no, 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 no. Look, look, look. I thought it's right. Chris said asking, well, I'm about to say this or I'm about to start this argument or I'm about to make this change. And I thought about it. And it's about God. Can I ask you to just go do a little check on that? 
Because there are a lot of things in my life that I have said was about God that was not about God. That was about what I thought about God. Oh, the I is going to show up again. You got to watch my pronouns. They really tell the story. What I thought about God, what I thought he wanted me to do. Sometimes we say, well, I'm doing this, but it's for my wife or it's for my friends or it's for others. Please be diligent enough to ask the real questions because it will change the things that you do. And I want to use a text to kind of bring this home. So where I want you to be is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 19 through 26. And I think it'll tie a lot of what we've said together. Who is this about? And as we begin in verse 19, I want you to see that the vessel stuff is there. I like 2 Timothy 2 because it's not very frequently preached on. I don't think I've heard many sermons on this text, although it's super rich and it ties everything together. It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but it does mention almost all the fruit of that spirit. Pick up with me in verse 19. 2 Timothy 2, 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, here it is, the imagery, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earth and ware and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, the wickedness of verse 19, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Okay, this is where we want to go. We're about to land this plane. This is where we want to go. We want to leave here today cleansed vessels, vessels that aren't taking up their own space, vessels that are honorable to God, vessels, verse 21, that are useful for the Lord. So how do we do that? Let's keep reading. I'm going to read verses 22 through 26. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservants must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. It perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Okay, several interesting things. I'll make a few observations and we'll be done. If we are going to be useful to the master, we need to be filled with the spirit. And it's almost all here. Verse 22, we need to be filled with righteousness. We need to be filled with faith, filled with love, filled with peace. In verse 24, we need to be filled with kindness. We also need to be filled with patience. And we need to be filled with gentleness. And we need to be able to teach because verses 25 and 26, and I don't know, maybe your mama told you this. Maybe you haven't been told this in a while. Maybe you tell yourself this every day, but it's not about you, like none of it. It's about serving the Lord and it's about helping other people get to heaven. Remember I told you earlier about praying for health and a long life. Why would God even give me another breath? That's not about me. God would give me another breath because either I need to get right with him or he's going to use me to help someone else get right with him. Part of understanding our lives is understanding verses 25 and 26 that the goal is to save souls. The goal is to help people repent, verse 25. The goal, verse 26, is to help them escape the snare of the devil and to be saved and to be freed. And that, folks, is not about me. And I like that. It's about others and their souls. So if we're going to do that, if we're going to be filled with the right things and about others and pouring forth, there are three things in that read. I just read them in verses 20 through 26. There are three things that got to go. I'm going to finish with this. There are three things that got to come out of the, They got to come out of the cup. And the only way to really get them out of the cup is to ask the questions. So I'm going to share them with you and then we'll be done. Number one, did you see it in verse 22? 
if we're really going to do this, pour forth the Spirit and save souls, we must get youthful lusts out of our bodies and minds. I mentioned it a little bit this morning. Pornography, running rampant everywhere. Can't be in the cup. Can't use the cup for that. Fornication, sex outside of marriage. Adultery, outside of marriage. Lust, they just can't belong to you. You say, well, that's just my flesh, and that's this, and that's that. Anybody know who pornography is about? Anybody know who that's about? Anybody have any idea who that's about? That's only about one person, the person who's doing it. It's only them. It has nothing to do with their spouse. It has nothing to do with their kids. They don't want their kids to know. It has nothing to do with the church. nothing to do with the community. Uh, a few months ago, one, Grant Martin, one of our guys, got up and did a lesson about um, human sex trafficking of underage girls. He's an officer in the pornography business. I think we were all crying. I think, I was, I think we were all like he was talking about their, their ages and how their parents sell them for drugs and how they're exploited and, and how... At that moment in that building, at that moment, in, here's my guess, or however many people there, at that, moment in, at that moment in that building, if anybody would have brought a computer to them and said, here, why don't you go check out some pornography? No one in the room would have come anywhere near it because in that moment, we were thinking about whom? Those girls and their families. But some of those same guys, I'm going to tell you, got home, and it was 1230, and their families were asleep, and they were sitting at their computer, and the same guys who were teared up in the building three hours earlier are viewing it again. What changed? Their focus turned from those girls to themselves. You want to get over pornography? Get over yourself. It's not about you. Jesus said, Deny yourself. You're in, an under, you're in a relationship. You're not married to a sexual relationship. That's about you. It's not about the purity of the person that you think you love. It's not about the sanctity of what God wants to build in your life. And it's not about your family. And it's not about the church. It's just about you. And what we have to do is understand that we can't do these things for us and then carry out his work. Yeah, the Lord will forgive us. He's so forgiving and gracious. I said to somebody afterwards this morning, the Lord's much more concerned with your direction than your position. Your position may not be right, and in some ways it'll never be perfectly right. He wants to know where you're going from here. And maybe where we're going is we're going to reach in there, we're going to remove that thing. Both of the examples, I'll just note this quickly and we'll move forward. Both of the, two of the vessel examples I gave you in the beginning was 1 Thessalonians 4, know how to possess your vessel in honor, and 1 Corinthians 6 where he talked about the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Who knows what the point, what was the point in both of those contexts? Does anybody remember what was the point in verses line? It was fleeing sexual immorality. Both of those, the most clear vessel passages in the whole New Testament are about possessing your vessel for the purpose of others, not self. And the one example they both gave was immorality. I'm gonna tell you what I told you this morning. I don't care if you gotta cut stitches in your palm you pick a way to remind yourself, never again. No. No. Will we falter? We may, but I'm not even going to give you that. Let's just not. Let's change. But it all amounts to midnight, Friday night, it doesn't matter when or where. It really all amounts to like one question. 
It's not, will you fill me with your spirit? Or will you take immorality away? Good questions. I got a better one. Who's this about? That answer tells the story pretty much every time. Now, you might say, well, that's not really an issue for me. And that's wonderful if if that's the way we're able to live. But he has a couple other things to say as well. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, hey, we want to be filled with faith and love and peace and kindness. All these wonderful, wonderful qualities. So one of the things we're going to have to get out of the cup is verse 23. Foolish and ignorant speculations. How much time we got? Do we got some time? Oh, man. All right. Foolish. What does he mean? First of all, when he says refuse them, like that's not what belongs. That's not for a Christian to pour foolish and pour ignorant speculations onto the digital world or into the physical world. No, that's not what we're about. We're, we're not about saying things that we cannot. You know what? You want to know what a foolish and you want you want to know what it is? It's something that you can't prove. And even if you could prove it, it wouldn't matter. That's what a foolish or ignorant speculation is. First of all, you can't prove it. You say, I can prove it. I found Google page two, article seven. Well, I'll just go to Google page four and I'll disprove it. How do you like that? And then you can go to Google page eight. Google's deep. You can go 30 pages deep and then it gets into like weird foreign languages and stuff and it doesn't help you. But the point is, there are a lot of things we're arguing right now. There are a lot of things Christians are arguing. There are things Christians are arguing about health. There are things Christians are arguing about politics. There are things Christians are arguing about race, about religion, about all these things. And they're arguing, and I'm just telling you, you can't prove most of what you're posting. And even if you could prove it, I don't care. You better care. No, I better not. What I care about is how do we help people caught up in all that junk? Like thinking it's like everything, you know? And whether you get this shot or you wear that mask or you go here or you vote for this or you do that, like they think that's everything that matters and none of it matters if you're not in a relationship with Jesus. And so here's how I'm gonna prove that. I'm gonna get online tomorrow and I'm gonna share some vaccine post and contribute. And you say, well, you might be going, All right, I'll leave that alone, by the way, because I don't know where you guys are, but you're, I mean, you're down here in the South with me. But look, you might say, well, that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about. And you'd be right. I mean, when he says foolish and ignorant speculations, you can go back to, um, and there's several places, but like 1 Timothy chapter 1, you, you might say, well, when he says foolish and ignorant speculations, he's talking about genealogies. He's talking about myths. He's talking about stuff that can't be proven and doesn't matter, but he's talking about connecting them to religion. I think that if you told that to me, you'd be saying the right thing. Because in chapter 1, it's kind of like, Verse three is like, there's all these strange doctrines, First Timothy 1, 3, and don't pay attention to the myths. Don't pay attention to the genealogies. All they do is give rise to speculation. In other words, some other Google document will disprove it. Instead of administration, the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith, he said, look, we need to have a goal of instruction in love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But guys, I'm just gonna tell you guys, we're all friends here. I'm gonna be gone tomorrow anyway. I don't know, guys. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Some of this political stuff, some of this medical stuff, some of this social stuff, it's starting to sound religious for Christians. You know what I mean? Like it's starting to sound like it is as important as the name of Jesus Christ. And, and it, it needs to be fought with the vigor. It's being fought with 10 times the vigor that we stand up for the name of Jesus Christ in this world. And I'm just telling you, if, if it needs to become religious to be a problem, then I think it's a problem. 
And what I think is before you post that, before you share that, before you say that, before you do that, would you just please stop for a moment and go like, who's this really about? Who's this about? You know what you're going to find most of the time? It's about you wanting to defend something you said or defend something you did or don't do or whatever. It, it, I'm starting to believe, you can correct me later, but I'm starting to believe that like anything that isn't about Jesus is ultimately about me. Like Jesus is the only name that matters. So what I would encourage you to do is let's, let's get the, it's fine to be political, it's fine to be medical, it's fine, all that's fine, but, but let's just, let's get that out of the cup. And let's pour forth of the Spirit. But what you're going to find is it's not really that. It's, it's, it's me. And then it gets to one more level. Go to 2 Timothy. I want to finish with this. Maybe it's immorality. We talked about that. Maybe it's just arguments that don't need to be made. Don't matter. But then he says this. He says in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. The text in verse 23 says the problem with all the foolishness and the ignorant speculations and the unprovable things and the things that you're so mad at people because they don't care when they should is that it makes us fight. Verse 23, they produce quarrels. But the problem is the Lord's bondservants, we're not supposed to be quarrelsome. Instead of quarrelsome, we're supposed to be kind. Instead of quarrelsome, we're supposed to be teaching. Instead of quarreling with people, we're supposed to be patient with them. Instead of quarreling, we're supposed to be gentle with them. Instead of winning an argument, and I love to win, love it. Instead of winning an argument, we're supposed to be winning souls. And guess what? You can't do both. You can't do both. You can't go around winning. You got issues in your marriage. You can't win all the fights and win a better marriage. Like you can't. You have to stop the fighting and the quarreling. And, and the problem is there's all this, this fighting and rhetoric and these things. And I've got these verses here. I mean, for elders, 1 Timothy 33 is like one of the requirements of an elder is they cannot be quarrelsome. Like, like anybody can fight. Like two-year-olds can fight. Like anybody can fight because all a two-year-old knows how to think about is... Hmm, all two-year-old knows I think about is himself. I want. I win. Mine. Sometimes 22, 2, 42, it all starts to look the same. We gotta stop fighting over things that don't matter. You say, well, Jesus, uh-huh, Chris, I got you. Jesus flipped tables. Jesus popped whips. Jesus called names. He did all of that. He really did. But I would ask you to go study that. Because I cannot find a time where Jesus ever flipped a table, popped a whip, or called a name in defense of himself. He did so in defense of the honor of the name of the Heavenly Father. You want to flip a table over that? I'll come do it with you. But most of the time, that's not why we're popping whips. We're popping whips. Well, who's it about? About me. It's about I want to win the argument. I want to come out on top. I want to be the one. Go to James 4 for a moment. James 4 talks about teachers and uh, about those who ought not be teachers. James 3 and verse 1. It's an interesting study because I teach at home that every member ought to become a teacher, that there's not a single member of the church who should not be growing towards the point of teaching someone, teaching your children, teaching classes, teaching the lost, and everybody, we need to get out of this preacher-centric teacher business because you're just going to run out of us, okay? You're going to run out of preachers, and then everybody's going to have to learn to teach anyway. So let's just start it now, right? But every time I teach on that, somebody goes, well, James 3 says, James 3 says that not everybody should be teachers. Let me tell you about those in James 3. They were, they were awful, 
The people in James 3 were selfish. They only cared about themselves and they were interested in only what they could get. They were takers. Okay, if you're a taker, don't teach. But once you're not a taker anymore, every single person needs to start teaching. But here was the problem in James chapter 4 in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? So it's like, why are you fighting? Let's see if we can figure out why everybody's fighting. You're quarreling, you're conflicting each other. Is not the source your, watch this, your pleasures, they wage war in your members, that's body, you lust and do not have, so you kill somebody. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you beat somebody up. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask me for stuff. This is, God's like, that. this is rich. You ask me for stuff, but you, you're asking so you can spend them on yourself. The problem in this text was, you can see it back in chapter 3 and verse 14, chapter 3 and verse 16, they were selfishly ambitious. So much of our fighting is about pride. So much of it is about winning and God's going, man, that's all about you. What about us? Let me talk about churches a moment. I know you guys have been through some things here in the last 10 years. Uh, in my life, I'm 42, been in the church whole life, preaching half that time, 21 years. I've been in or associated with, I would say four, maybe five, depending on how you look at it, church splits. Aren't church splits the worst? Church splits the worst. You guys know what the worst part about a church split is? Anybody know what the very worst part about a split is? Other than the fact that it brings sorrow to the Son of God. That when churches split, there's a big chasm in between. You guys know that? There's a big chasm. And a lot of weak souls fall into that chasm and never find their way out. They didn't even know what you're fighting about. All they know is it ruined their faith. And a lot of the people who caused those splits are going to have to answer for those lost souls. That's what I believe about that. Now, in the 20th century, there were splits over doctrinal stances. I can see that. I can tell you about five in my history, three very personal, one somewhat, one a little less so, but in all five of them, both sides, sides, what great language, both sides would tell you, well, it wasn't a doctrinal issue. It wasn't doctrinal. Well, then what in the world was it? Tell me what it was. If it wasn't doctrinal, what was it? Well, they, and well, he, and well, we, well, you. Let's just call it what it is. If there's a divide and souls are hurt and our children are going, why is everybody so mad at each other? And we're going, it's defending what the Bible teaches on marriage. Okay, we got a little bit of room to talk. But when everybody's going, it wasn't doctrinal, it was just, just stop. There's not a thing you can say next that isn't about the people involved. Instead of the cause of Christ, the young souls who witnessed it and the people who fell into the chasm. I say, We change all that. That's what I say. You're not going to catch me fighting with you over things that I cannot prove definitively in Scripture. Somebody's going to say, that sounds pretty weak to me. I've got a lot of weaknesses. You can just write that down as one of them. But I'm not going to fight you if I can't show you a book, chapter, and verse for where I stand in the commands of God. I will help work with you unto unity. And I just think that God is taking us to this text and he's saying, just ask yourself a question, all that fighting and all that bantering and all those words, like who is that about? And the answer is always, the answer is not Jesus, it's always us. Now I want to finish in a really positive and wonderful way. Go back to 2 Timothy 2. Let's finish in really, really good stuff here. And then I'm going to lead a prayer and then, uh, and then we'll have our, our song. Look, the good news is the Lord's still willing to use us. I mean, maybe you've been listening today going, well, God's not going to use me. No, he, he wants to use you. It's, it's remarkable, really. 
He said, no, we're going to just work on this. Verse 21, we're going to cleanse this. We're going to evaluate this. We're going to make some changes. You're super useful to me. And while you may struggle with all these things, I believe that we can move the youthful us out and we can move the faithfulness in. I believe we can move out the things that don't matter and move in the things that do and we can stop fighting. Because listen, what we want to do, verse 25, is we want to save souls. We want people to find the peace that's granted by God through repentance, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We're here to save souls and I can't do it. But the Spirit can. And by God's incredible design, he says that he can use this vessel to do it. Do you believe that about yourself? Because that's what God wants to do. Can we bow together and then we'll have our song. Our great God in heaven, we give glory to your mighty name. You're so good to us, Father. You made us and you blessed us with life and you created this world fashioned for our good and benefit and We get to enjoy good relationships and health and enjoyable times and beautiful weather. And God, you've gifted us so many things. And and in some senses, we should just apologize to you and be sorrowful that for all the good gifts you give, each of us have made our mistakes. We have broken it. We have gone away that didn't please you. We've eaten of the tree from which you told us not to, Father. But it only turns us to praise and thanksgiving to you again, Lord. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for offering your son's perfect blood so that righteousness may be imputed upon the unworthy. So that we, in jars of clay that we've done our best to break into pieces, can be pieced back together, held together, and filled with the life-giving and eternal spirit. Father, it is a gift and a privilege to know that you see us as useful. I pray that everyone here has the spirit of the Apostle Paul, who simply was astonished every day of his life that God would even think to use Him, the least of all apostles, the most unworthy, the persecutor of Christians. And yet he was so thankful that God would cleanse him and believe in him and use him that he used himself. He died daily. He used himself. He died daily to serve your son and to pour forth life-giving spirit. Father, I'm hopeful and thankful for the power of your son. And I pray for each of us here today that we will understand our purpose, that we will be excited about our purpose, that we will be a little frightened knowing that we don't know how much longer we have to be here and that sometimes we've wasted good opportunities, but also thankful that we're still here and that you still clearly have people in our lives who need the truth. That's the reason we're still breathing because they need the truth and you've decided to use us to do it. Father, may immorality never be in the way. Father, may foolishness never impede the message. And Father, for us here today, will a quarrelsome spirit never block the hearing of the gospel of peace that is provided to your people. Father, we know the problem. The problem is that each of us look to ourselves. And Father, we pray that each of us will have the courage, the boldness, the conviction to look to you over ourselves, to deny, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, his cross, your cross, and follow Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for considering us worthy to be useful in your service. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's your prayer, if you feel like you can be encouraged to those ends, you're surrounded by people who love you and who want to help you, we bear fruit for the sustenance of one another. If you need nourishment, come now as we stand and sing.